We're coming out of the book of John this morning, and we're going to be in the book of Matthew, Matthew 1, and I'll be reading 18, verses 18 through 23. Now the birth of Jesus the Messiah was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed of Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be pregnant by the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, since he was a righteous man and did not want to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had thought this over, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all that took place, all this took place so that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet would be fulfilled. Behold, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. You may be seated. One of the greatest challenges of well-known passages in the Bible is that you've heard them so many times over and over and over again, you kind of lose the meaning of the passage. How many of you are familiar with that? For God's all of the world, that He gave the only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Okay, well, I know that. <laughs> and so we hear a passage over and over and over again, and it loses its meaning and its power and its effect in our lives. It kind of lulls us to sleep. But another challenge is that certain passages, like this Christmas story you just heard Dave read out of Matthew chapter 1, they hold a sentimental value. So they, so they take on a value other than what was intended by God initially. How many of you know people who are completely far away from God, completely unregenerate, living like hell, just loving Christmas? How many of you know, like, so many people just find the sentimentality within something, and that's a value... It's a great value, except it's completely useless for us when it comes to eternal values and our relationship with God. So oftentimes, when it takes on this form, this sentimental form, it touches our emotion instead of our heart. And there's a difference between how you feel and who you are. It touches our memories instead of our lives. Because how many of you... When you see it didn't snow this year, you're kind of sad about it, right? Because you remember all the good years when there was so much snow. And now, now, look, Christmas, Pam, is not Christmas if it's not a white Christmas, right? And so we remember all those wonderful moments where we had hot chocolate around the Christmas tree and the whole entire family was there. But this year, it's lonely. It's just not the same. <laughs> and so we, we have a certain memory that causes it to be sentimental, but it still doesn't touch our lives. Until a passage becomes an applicable spiritual truth to you and I, it remains powerless in our lives. Christmas is powerless to many because they hold values to Christmas that was unintended by God. So it is my goal today to make this Christmas story more real to you than ever before. And then we're going to end off with a call to action that I believe is going to be life-shaping and altering for every single one of us. So right here when, where Dave uh, read Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, the, the 23rd verse is, is really where that ball gets hit right out of the park. And that moment right there is really where Matthew repeats an Old Testament prophet prophesying that Jesus was going to be here with us. God was going to be incarnated in the flesh. And now this prophet, Isaiah, 
lived 700 years before Jesus was born. 700 years before Jesus was born. How old is the United States? Anybody know? Yeah, almost 300 years, right? Now, this prophet lived 700 years before Jesus, just to put it into context. And he prophesies this in verse 23. Behold, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. Now, I would love to know what the Jewish people make out of this. Here's their prophet saying that the virgin will conceive and birth and give birth to a son. And then he says, and they shall name him Emmanuel. Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Can everybody please say God with us? God with us. Today we are going to look at this name, Emmanuel, God with us, because in the name lies the power and the meaning and the purpose of God for us and our relationship with Him. It is in the name that you discover the purpose. I'll put it to you real simple. When somebody tells you this is a lawn mower, you go like, well, what do you do with this thing? No, you know what you do with it. Why? Because the name told you what you had to do with it, right? The purpose is in the name, mowing the lawn. That's what you do with this thing, all right? <laughs> and so, in the name, there is a message, there is a purpose, there is a calling, and there's a power that will shape our lives. And so, we want to look at that individually. What does it mean that He is God with us? Number two, what does it mean that He is God with us. Thirdly, who is He referring to when He said He is God with us? Who is the us He's talking about? So we want to look at that because when we are able to identify, exegete what He meant by what He said when they called Him Emmanuel, every time a member right here at Christ Nation will hear Emmanuel, we will, it, it will burst within us the meaning of that name. Every time you hear, and he shall be called Emmanuel, God with us, when it rolls off of other people's consciences, their psyche, their understanding, their heart, and their emotions, it ought not to do that with you. It ought not to just hold a sentimental, a sentimental value, but a powerful spiritual value. So let's talk about what does it mean that he is God, God with us. Is this a reality for you and I? that it is God that is with us. How has God been revealed to us? The answer is very clearly uh, stated in Scriptures that Christ is the express image of God. He's the express image of God. If this is God and He is light, it's almost like He projects like a projector, an image of Himself and there he is, Jesus, is the image of God expressed. One and the same. The answer is very clearly stated that we see God in Christ. We see God in Christ Jesus. As a matter of fact, we know God in Christ Jesus and Christ alone. There's no other place to know Him, no other place to see Him. He is not expressed anywhere else. He's expressed in Christ, His person, His attributes, and His character. So we know, therefore, number one, that Jesus is God. If you had to ask the question, what does it mean that He is God? Well, Jesus is God, and everything Jesus stood for, this is God. You see, the central message of, Christ of Christmas is that the Creator, the Almighty God, King of the universe, became a man. And this is referred to as the doctrine of the Incarnation, the Incarnation of Christ. Deity takes on the form of man without losing any of His divinity. Let me just say that again. Deity came to earth, took on the form of man without losing any of His divinity. He's as divine in the flesh as He was in heaven. 
He didn't lay aside his deity. He gave up all, the, all of his privileges and he took on flesh. And he walked among us 2,000 years ago, 100% God, 100% man, not 50-50. He wasn't a diminished version of God. He was all of God. Nothing less, nothing more. This one truth has become a major stumbling block to a very large portion of humanity, as you know. For instance, Islam takes great offense to the idea that we claim God came to us in the form of man and Jesus was begotten because they don't believe that God could have been begotten. He always existed. We agree, but they don't see what the Scriptures are saying. You see, Scriptures are very clear on this issue. In John 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word. That is what you're holding in your lap today. Thank you for bringing your Bibles in. But it's uh, the Word of God that you hold in your lap today. He chose to communicate to us through a book. And this very word, which is the word logos, which is where we get the word logic from. Can everybody say logic? logic. Okay, so logos, the Bible says, in the beginning was the logos, was logic, and the logos was with God, and the logos was God. Interesting. Verse 14 says, and the logos, the word, became flesh, took on flesh, and dwelt among us. We saw His glory, glory as of the only Son of the Father. So according to the Apostle John, Jesus is God. Not a, not a lesser version of the divine, but totally 100% divine. The Word, the entire Logos, became flesh. In Acts 20, verse 28, the overseers of the church were given a mandate... In Acts 20, verse 28, it says, Shepherds speaking to pastors and elders in the church. And the mandate is given, Shepherds, shepherd the church of God, which He purchased with His own blood. Shepherd this church of God, which God purchased with His own blood. That means Jesus is God because it was Jesus who purchased the church with His blood. We see in John 20, verse 28, Thomas answered and said to Jesus, My Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. In no uncertain terms, the apostles saw Jesus as God. The Bible clearly teaches that Jesus, the baby who was born and raised by Mary and Joseph, was God. So the next time you hear Emmanuel, God, with us, know that this is referring to the Creator God, the Almighty who measures the oceans in the hollow of His hand. You know the Bible says that He measures the oceans in the hollow of His hand and the universe by the span of His hand. This is God, Emmanuel, with you. That's who's with you. It says that in Isaiah 40 verse 12, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of His hand and measured the heavens? with a span of His hand. That is God, and He is with you. That is who walked the earth known as Jesus, and that is who is with you today. So number two, the question, what does it mean that God is with us? How many of you would like to know what that means? <laughs> what does it mean that God is with me? For most part, it is a comfort because it's an emotional I guess, anchor we hold on to. But there's so much regarding this. What does it mean that God is with us? This great and mighty Creator that measures the whole entire universe, span of His hand, that Creator God, He put Himself with us. How? By becoming one of us. He became a man. By coming alongside us. By joining us. He chose to keep company with us and He chose to communicate His gospel with us 
by becoming a man. Now, throughout history, God showed Himself to be with humans, and in the Old Testament, He showed Himself to be with humans in a very different way. He showed Himself to be with humans in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, God spoke and communicated and related to humans. However, He did the same 2,000 years ago in the New Testament. He showed Himself to be with humans, but in a radically different way than before. See, in the Old Testament, we see God showed Himself in ways that caused men to tremble, caused men to fear, it caused men to fall down on their faces, caused men to run and hide in terror. Think about how absolutely terrifying God seemed when He showed Himself to Job. The Bible says that He showed Himself to Job in a tornado. He showed Himself to Job in a whirlwind, in a hurricane. Now, when you look at the news and you see that a tornado hit a certain city or neighborhood, uh, we're very familiar with it right here in the United States, of course. We see entire neighborhoods and even portions of cities just wiped out. We just had a hurricane in the south, in Kentucky, and it just wiped out entire neighborhoods. And this was God. He showed himself to Job in this overpowering, destructive, unstoppable way, something to run from and hide from. That is what Job saw when he saw God. God showed himself to Job in a terrifying way. But think about how God revealed himself to Abraham. Now, I can go throughout the Old Testament and I can show you many examples of the same. But think about how God revealed Himself to Abraham as a smoking furnace hovering in midair. Now, I can't imagine what that... I mean, I can't imagine, but I don't know if, it's the, if I'm imagining the right thing. However, um, that is strange, isn't it? <laughs> this smoking furnace just hovering, and then it starts moving in a very specific pattern passing through between all of the pieces of the animal that Abraham had slain and he had cut up. Think about how God showed Himself to the children of Israel as a pillar of fire. And this was while they were in the desert traveling. There was about three million of them. And the children of Israel saw this every night, this massive pillar of fire in the desert, keeping them warm. Now, Tina and I went to Canada years ago, um, and uh, we got to, what's that, what are the waterfalls there? Niagara Falls. I almost said Victoria Falls. But it was the Niagara Falls. And um, we stood at the bottom of the Niagara Falls. I don't know if you've been there, but it's just the most overpowering thing to see that mass of water come crushing down from that height. And it was like this massive, massive pillar of water just beating down on the earth right there where we were standing. And it thunders. You can hardly, I mean, you can't even hear somebody talk. It's so loud. And I, and I stood there thinking, that must be something similar to this pillar of fire that's just all-consuming. However, it had to have been many, many times bigger than the Niagara Falls because this pillar of fire kept three million people warm at night in the middle of the desert. This was God showing Himself in the Old Testament. Every time God showed up, He showed up in a terrifying way, overwhelming, overpowering, possibly destructive, Definitely unstoppable. That was in the Old Testament. Now, in the New Testament, God reveals Himself as a baby. Baby Jesus. And we seem to treat God like He is no longer terrifying. 
we treat Him differently, we think of Him differently, we feel differently about Jesus, this helpless little baby dependent upon His young mother. No longer terrifying, no longer awesome in power, no longer majestic. I mean, he was born in a crib, in a stable, no longer sovereign, and no longer all-powerful as we seemed in the Old Testament. So can you see how people now see God differently because of the incarnation? Yet there is the doctrine very clearly outlined by Reformed theologians on the immutability of God. He doesn't mutate. He doesn't change and alter throughout time. He's always the same. How many of you know He's the same yesterday, today, and forever? Yeah? He does not mutate. He does not change. If God changed, you don't want a God that keeps changing. <laughs> you want a God that never, never changes. Why? Because if He changes, that means it's either for better or for worse. And if He became good in the New Testament, that means He wasn't good in the Old. And if He could change one way, He could change back to a different way. You don't want that. And the Bible doesn't preach that. Nowhere. But throughout Scriptures, we find Him to be immutable. He does not change. He does not alter. He's always merciful. He's always kind and He's always saved men by grace throughout time, including the Old Testament. We now tend to treat God as He has changed, as if He's now become less in all of those attributes which we used to tremble at. Uh, it's almost like we view Him now less than what people used to that would cause people to fall down and worship Him, we now treat Him less than those attributes that brought that out of people, right? Can you see what I'm saying? In the Old Testament, we see every person who was approached by God was told, do not fear. Why? Because they were freaking out. That's why. They were told, do not fear. Nowadays, when God approaches somebody, they have to be told, these people have to be told to now be respectful. So the question is, do you, during Christmas time, now that God has come, in a, come as a baby, do you diminish your awe, your reverence, your adoration of His mighty and terrifying power? Has it been diminished because of the incarnation? So we conclude this point with a question. Why did God come to us as a helpless, homeless baby when before that, God came to humans as this terrifying, majestic, almighty that He really is. Why did God come to us as a helpless, dependent baby, dependent upon humans? Well, the answer here is because before the birth of Jesus, God came to humans as God. He came to human as God. This is who I am. In the New Testament... He comes as Emmanuel, God with us. He came to show us who He is, terrifying, powerful, almighty, creator God, omnipotent, omniscient. He came and He is completely immutable, yet He comes as Emmanuel to save us from who He really is. <laughs> Terrifying. He came and He said, there is no possible way for you to be right with a God like this. But what is impossible with man, it does become possible with God. He does become Emmanuel to you and I. God with us. God with us. But never are we encouraged to change our view of God Himself. He hasn't mutated. He hasn't changed. He came for different purposes the first time to show us who He is. The second time to save us because of who we are. 
But that doesn't mean we ought to we ought to reduce our reverence and our honor toward Him. Amen? So number three, we first talked about what does it mean that God is with us? What does it mean that God is with us even though He's the same God? And we're going to talk about who is God with? Like, who is the us referred to in His name, Emmanuel? Well, here's something very obviously exclusive. He didn't say God is with everyone. He said God is with us. Who is the us referred to here? I want to give you very four, four very specific groups of people that God is with. The first group of people is that um, the exegetical, or exegetically speaking, the first group of people is what we find that was originally in the mind of the author at the time when he wrote Emmanuel, God with us. Well, originally the author had the Jews in mind when penning that statement. It was only later on when the apostles in the book of Acts realized that God has also now offered repentance to the Gentiles, and that is in Acts 11.18. But before Acts 11.18, Matthew was writing God with us, Jews, right? But secondly, we see, scripturally speaking, if you look at the Scripture's all-encompassing meaning of this, we now know Jesus came for the Jews, but also for the Greeks, and also for the Gentiles, and also for all those who were far off. That's the us referred to in God with us. We were sent to preach the gospel to all nations, all people's groups, all ethnicities, because in those groups there is the remnant, the part of the body of Christ. Number three, more specifically, the us refers to the lowly, the weary, the poor in spirit, not those financially poor. Jesus didn't just come for the, for the broke. <laughs> Jesus came for the spiritually poor. And some people who have a lot of money are spiritually poor. What does this mean? They are bankrupt within themselves to be qualified with God. They have nothing to purchase salvation with. They are spiritually bankrupt, and they know it. They're spiritually poor. Therefore, they become humble. Jesus came for the humble, but He rejects the proud. Therefore, we see that the us referred to is the lowly, the weary, the poor in spirit, the humble, those who have nothing to offer, like those shepherd boys that followed the star. Those who, like these shepherd boys, were the lowest-ranking humans in society, they came to Christ with absolutely nothing. And to come to Christ, all you need is nothing. But many don't have it. They come with something. Many expect to be accepted by Christ because they view themselves sufficiently valuable. Look at the cross. You'll know your value. Not true. Look at the cross. You'll know your depravity. That's how much it costs Christ to save you from what you got yourself into. Don't bring your value in exchange for the blood of Christ. No, God, God saved you because He loved you, not because you were valuable. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. So many expect to be accepted by Christ because they view themselves as a good person. They have a moral high ground of some sort. They believe that they have good intentions. They measure everybody by their actions. They measure themselves by their intentions. Therefore, they qualify. Everybody else disqualifies. That's what the Pharisee did. Well, they expect to be accepted in Christ because they have done good things. But to come to Christ, God demands that you come poor in spirit, bankrupt within yourself to qualify for anything that He has to offer. Salvation belongs to Him on His terms, according to His will and purposes. And we thank God that we received His mercy, not His justice. Some receive mercy, others justice, but God is never unjust. He's a righteous King. That always humbles me. These are the ones that God 
is with the Jew, the Greeks, the Gentiles, the weak, the weary, the lonely, the poor in spirit, the humble. But number four, and most specifically, the us are those whom the Father gave to Jesus to save and to cleanse and to marry as His bride. It's all over Scriptures, actually. It couldn't be more clear. In John chapter 6, verse 37, Jesus said, Everything that the Father gives me will come to me. He's speaking of His kingdom filled with those in His kingdom. Everything God gave me, the Father gives me, will come to me, and I will not cast them out. John 6, 39, Jesus says, And this is the will of Him who sent me. Who sent Him? God the Father. This is God the Father's will, that everything that He has given me, I will lose nothing. I will lose nothing. Are some people lost? Yes. How many on the wide road? Many. Yet, Jesus loses not one who has given Him. Everything the Father has given me, I will lose none of them. Every single sheep under that shepherd is safe. John 17 verse 2 says, He gives eternal life to each one you have given Him. Jesus gives eternal life to every single person the Father God has given to Jesus. If the question is asked, God is with us. Who is the us referred to in Emmanuel? That's us. That's, the, that's who the us is. Those whom God has given to Jesus. There is no scriptural doubt over the fact that Christ's bride was given to Him by the Father and that, and that His bride is whom Jesus came to save eternally and He will succeed in His mission. He has never failed. And that is who the us refers to in scriptures. I want to end today with giving you three applications, three applications how to apply these truths that we learned today. It's one thing to know the story. It's one thing to, and to be sentimental over the Christmas story. It's another thing to know the truth about what God is saying in the story of God with us, Emmanuel. But it's still another thing to know how that truth can be applied to our lives and how that truth actually impacts us. Amen? May this Christmas not come and go without God changing you because of it. So how do I apply the truth that God is with us? Well, if it is really God Almighty who is with you, then some of us need to take the limitations off of life. Stop living like the Almighty is not with you. Never have we seen a greater display of the church acting like the Almighty is not here. Never have we seen the church run in terror It's something so insignificant. So my message is, or my challenge to you is, if you truly believe this message and the season that you so love to celebrate, make sure that this message from God, the incarnation, Emmanuel, God, God, the Almighty, who measures the universe by the span of His hand, who holds all the waters of the universe, including the oceans, in the hollow of His hand. That Creator God, who's a terrifying Almighty, He is with you. How dare you live like He's not? I think, literally, that it is somewhat of a slap in the face. I'm always encouraged by the opposite. Watch this. So, little girl this morning wakes up and she had a nightmare. And she walks into the room this morning. Tina's already getting busy. 
getting ready. She's busy getting ready. And I'm busy getting ready on my side. <laughs> Still <laughs> thinking. And a little girl walks in, and she's like, she had a nightmare. And I'm like, oh, that's, that's OK, honey. Look at me. And I take her in my arms, and we put her in our bed. We say, that's going to be OK. And she's comforted by the fact that we were there. Tina first tells her, why don't you go back, sleep? Everything's going to be fine. She goes, no, I want to sleep here. I said, OK, yeah, you can sleep here. Put her in our bed, hold her. I'm saying, you're going to be OK, sweetheart. And she smiles at me, and she's relaxed. I tell you what, that touches a father's heart somehow, right? <laughs> Honey, I will take care of you. Don't worry about a thing. Don't even think about it. I don't care how big that monster is, because you dreamt about a monster. Daddy will take care of it. <laughs> and, but that makes you feel so good when she believes you. When she believed me, I felt really good. Imagine if she didn't. If she looked at me, she goes, Daddy, that doesn't make me feel any better. Because looking at you, compared to that monster, I don't see, I don't see how. <laughs> but uh, uh, this is what we do to God. Emmanuel, God with us, let's celebrate Christmas. And then we run in terror and in fear as if what we are facing is much bigger than the one who's with us. So stop living like the Almighty is not with you. Start living peacefully. Live peacefully. You're in His arms. He does not lose one. Live confidently. You're in His purpose. He has called you. The Apostle Paul preached that real Christian love, real Christian love believes all things, hopes all things that comes from God, endears all things that comes from the world. Real Christians live like that. Do you know why Paul lived and loved like that? Most of us don't. It's because he actually lived like the Almighty was with him. I mean, think about it when he was preaching before he went to Jerusalem. And the prophet goes to him, takes off his belt, his own belt, and the prophet binds his own hands and he says, I just saw this. This is what will happen to you, Paul, if you go to Jerusalem tomorrow. And Paul said, thank you. I'm still going. Because they were begging him not to go. Remember that? They said, you're going to get caught. You're going to be imprisoned. You're going to be tortured. And off he went first thing that morning. He lived and he loved fearlessly. Why? Because he knew God was with him. He knew God was sovereign. He knew his steps were ordered of God. He lived like God was with him. So here's what I wanted to say to you, that if you are becoming more and more cynical in life, it is simply over this reason, because you do not really believe that God is with you. You believe it's you against the system. If you're cynical, stop it. Not stop being cynical, stop believing that God is not with you. Because cynicism is just a result of thinking, I'm alone in this system that's swallowing me up. If you have given up hope in God's promises, it is because you do not really believe the Almighty is standing with you. If you look back on 2021 and you have no hope for the future, you don't have courage for next year, it is because you do not really believe that the Almighty Creator God who measures the universe by the span of His hand, is actually with you, Emmanuel. So if that is you, there's only one response, and that is repent. If that is you, you're cynical, you're hopeless, you're fearful, and you have no courage and hope for the future, the only possible response you have to Scriptures is that God is, is that you should repent. That means turn from that foolish thinking 
Amen. <laughs> Foolish, futile thoughts. You stop believing that He is not God. This is the thing. You will find that in the church, almost more than anywhere else, Satan is always attempting to remove God from his position. Why? Because <laughs> that is what Satan has been doing from the very beginning. Remember? What was the problem up in heaven? Lucifer was jealous. He was filled with pride. And he wanted God dethroned. He wanted to reply, he wanted to take from God God's position and give it to himself. If the Bible says Jesus is king, guess what? Jesus is king. I don't care who says what. He's king. Oh no, the earth is on a lease to man, and man has given it to. That is so much garbage. Jesus is king. Guess what? When Jesus said, therefore, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all the nations, teaching them to obey all that I have taught you. We have done that wrong for generations. We go out there and we attempt to convince people that Jesus is king. That's not what the Bible told us to do. That's not Jesus' command. Because he didn't just say, go into all the world and preach the gospel. He said, therefore, go into all the world and preach the gospel. If you see the word therefore, you have to go before it to see why therefore is there, right? Therefore, because of this reason, go and preach the gospel and tell them to obey me, I'm the king. Therefore, well, what is therefore? Well, right before it, he says, now all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. I am now king over everything, even death. Therefore, go and tell them I'm king. Don't go and try and convince them to believe that I am. Tell them that I am. We are to proclaim this gospel. He is already king. We aren't trying to make him king. Jesus is up in heaven going like, ah, oh, I hope this time they say, hope this time they succeed. Because I so want to be king. <laughs> really want to be king so bad. I hope that they'll go over to Africa and convince the whole entire nation, I'm king, I want to be king. No, he's already king. Therefore, go and proclaim. See? It's wonderful to know that he is already God. If you hear a message where anybody's attempting to make God less than what He already is, that is not Scriptures. That is not God. He is God. He is exactly the same, immutable, as what He was in the Old Testament. He is a terrifying God, but He came as a baby, and don't be deceived by that. He's not trying to deceive you. Satan's trying to deceive you by telling you, cushy, cushy, little Jesus, happy birthday, birthday boy. That is not who God is. He is still terrifying. Right? <laughs> He's still awesome. He's still sovereign. He's still Lord. He's still King. You cannot take any of that away from Him and not do violence to truth for which we will pay a high price. God is with us. The Almighty is with us. The Sovereign is with us. The Creator, He's with us. The Judge of the ages, He's with us. Your shepherd is with you. And stop walking around and living like he is not. The only possible way for us to apply the truth of God being with us is to repent that we have lived like he's not. I can't believe just how the world has run in terror over something so small when in fact the Almighty has told them not to fear. Second application is how do I apply the truth that God is with us, that God is with us? And look at what God did to be with you. I mean, look at what God did to be with you. 
He humbled himself and laid aside all of the privileges of heaven, not his deity, his privileges. And he came down and became dependent upon the very humans he came to save. All that he did to be with you. Then he went and he died upon a cross. He gave himself for it, to it. He conquered death on your and my behalf so he could be with us. Look at what God did to be with us. The question is, what are we doing to be with him? You see, the truth is you could never out-sacrifice God. Well, I know he did a lot to be with me, and I've done a lot to be with him, except for, you know, got a bit of a tummy ache this morning, so... I'm not going to do my regular worship session. I'm not going to do my regular reading of the Scriptures. I'm not going to spend the time with Him right now because that is too high of a price to pay. People have become so absorbed with self and with how they feel today. It's become about that instead of about Him. Do you realize you should read some, some of the Reformers because we have history on their health very clear history on their health. People like, I just mentioned Calvin, I mean, he was just sick his whole life long. He preached from a stretcher. They carried him into church because he couldn't, he couldn't lift his head, but he would preach. Look at where we are. Look at what he did to be with us. What are we doing to be with him? Are you too busy? Are you too offended? The church hurt me. You're the church. <laughs> are you too lazy? Are you too hurt? Are you too cynical? Are you too ambitious? That's a big one. To be with him? What is the reason? Exactly what absorbs your time that prevents you from making time to be with Him. Exactly what is it that distracts you? And that distraction, which one is it that is so important that you simply cannot ignore that distraction for two hours a day, for two hours on a Sunday, to be with Him, to be with His body, to be with His people, to be in His presence and to worship together? Exactly what has captured your desire to the point where you prefer to be elsewhere? I used to know this guy that I stopped inviting coming over. And we were much younger at the time. We were still in our early 30s. What's that, 40 years ago? <laughs> and as I was saying, um, <laughs> I'm so glad on Christmas, our Christmas service, I must say this, we have it on video where we... Um, we moved the piano and everything, and Dave moved the piano stool. <laughs> and after moving the piano stool, he had to open up the service. He came up here. So what I was going to say is, if you don't mind standing. And I was like, Dave, what did you just say? I just moved the piano stool. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> That's why I asked Dave to sit in the front row today because I wanted to. <laughs> Whatever it's going to cost you to be with him is nothing in comparison what it cost him to be with you. You can never out-sacrifice God. You can never go, well, you know, that's a bit much asking right now. The weather's so nice or the weather's so bad. That's why they say two times it's really bad for church. Good weather, bad weather. Those are two times when it's not good to go to church. God is with us. How do we apply it? Think about what He had to do to be with you. Number three, how do we apply the truth that God is with us? How do we apply the truth that God is with us? Well, if God is with you, you, bride of Christ, chosen one of God, if God is with you, then your lukewarm and half-hearted response to God is simply not a rational one, completely irrational. 
it's like, have you ever seen when the guy goes down on his knee or, you know, he usually does it on the big screen at a baseball field, baseball uh, game or something. They have the camera on him and he pulls out the ring. He shows the girl the ring. <laughs> usually when, when a guy does that, <clears throat> you know, he does it because he's sure he's going to get a yes. Nobody does that knowing they're going to get rejected, right? I mean, that's a lot of money these days to buy that thing and be rejected at the same time. <laughs> so usually when a guy asks for her hand in marriage, he pulls out the ring, there's a response. There's an expected response. Who expects there to be no response? No, there is a response always, right? It's irrational for you to believe that God is with you, chosen one, and have, just be blasé about it. Jesus, do you want to marry me? <laughs> Thank you. Think about it. <laughs> That's actually not the truth. Anybody who sees him, whose eyes are opened to see their need, their disqualifying depravity and their qualifying Savior runs to him. Nobody goes, I'm going to try and serve him a bit, a bit better this year. You know, I'm going to try to do my best, but we'll see, see what the year brings. Nobody does that. That's part of the you that God is with. <clears throat> if God is with you, then your indifference and your apathetic response to the work of God is simply not a sane, normal, coherent, reasonable, or logical response. It just isn't. Somebody once wrote, anybody who ever came to meet Jesus Christ only had one of three responses. Only one of these three different responses. Number one, they were either terrified and wanted to run away from Him and hide. Number two, they wanted to kill Him and stone Him to death. Or number three, they fell down on their knees, worshipped Him, and gave Him everything they had. Those are the only three options, the only three responses people had when they came in contact with Christ. Any other relationship with Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us, is simply irrational. You either run from Him, or you try to get rid of Him, or you fall down, worship Him, and give Him everything you've got. That's the only one, the only three options you have, and you can only choose one. You cannot be lukewarm. You cannot be half-hearted. You cannot be apathetic. Yet strangely, that happens to be what most of the church at large has today. They're apathetic. Half-hearted and lukewarm. Because I don't know what... what percentage of what we think the church is, is in fact really the church. Today, I want us to look at the Christmas story of God and how it's revealed to us at the birth of Jesus. Therefore, in closing, let's see that this is truly God that is with us. He never changed in character, in person, or in traits to do that. He is still the same. And let us therefore respond honestly. Let's respond truthfully. And let's respond entirely to Him. Amen. Did you get something out of the Word today?